you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read it, and then we'll ask God for help, because I need it. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. That is the truest thing about you. And this is true as well. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life now, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, because of that, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away, Christian, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the, uh, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Skip to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, put on kindness and humility, put on meekness and patience, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all all these things, above everything else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is our text. Let's ask God for help. Lord, I, this morning, uh, this afternoon, desperately need your help in looking at this passage of Scripture. It just seems every week that the truth of this is so compelled, Lord, to, that we would be a people who follow Jesus and get who you are and what you've done and who we are in you above everything else and then let everything else flow from that. So once again, would you be exalted here? Would you show us your brilliance and your love and your compassion and your kindness and your holiness and your justice and your mercy and your forgiveness? Thank you that you are a God who relents. Thank you that you are a God who removes our sin, who, re- who redeems us and restores relationship with one another and with yourself. Thank you that you are all of that. And I pray that you would anoint me. And I, I ask God that Jesus would be exalted. Please, above every point, above every, even there might be parts in this um, sermon that um, cut deep, that Jesus would be exalted over our pride, our arrogance. Lord, help. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in the study on identity for quite a long, oh, well, five weeks, not a long time. And we've been talking specifically about our new identity in Christ. That's, that's what we've been talking about. As a follower of Jesus, the moment that one places their trust, we've been saying, and their faith in Jesus, the moment that you turn to Christ, at that moment, the Christian, you are a Christian at that moment, is given a new identity. A new identity is placed in you. It's placed upon you. You are renewed. You are made new. Now, 16 months prior to this series, we were in a study in the book of Mark. And throughout the study of the book of Mark, we were 
looking at the real Jesus. We said this week after week, this is the real Jesus, who he really was and what he's come to do. And many people throughout that, I don't know, year and a half um, or year or so came to trust in Christ and follow Jesus. I know there are some of you who during that time started coming here and followed Jesus and um, many were baptized. People freely worshiped for the first time. Taking communion, that was one of the things that was really cool. People were like, um, when did you become a Christian, a follower of Christ? Like, well, I took communion for the first time this day. It was like they were freed in their heart to go, I get to go forward and receive communion. But the question that comes up after a series like this, in the, in the part that's been so hard to grapple with, is what does your life then look like? Okay, I follow Jesus. I believe in Christ. You can call me Christian or whatever. I don't, whatever. You could, I'm, I, I follow Christ. So what is my life to look like now? How does Jesus radically change our identity and how are we to then live? See, normally, I don't know if you grew up in church or not, normally what happens is at this point when you trust in Christ and follow Jesus, at this point what happens is that you're given a list of things that you are to do and are not to do. Sometimes they're just kind of assumed when you go to a church, like as a church, this is the social norms of being at this church, you do this and you don't do this. Sometimes a pastor literally hands you a list, stop doing this and start doing that. The list looks something like this. It might be something like this. You, you might be used to a list. If you grew up in church or been around church or maybe observed church from afar, you're like, yeah, I know Christianity. Things to do and not to do. And this is what the list sometimes looks like. Once you are a Christian, you are to give your money to the church. And you are not to sleep with your girlfriend. You are to be kind. You are not to be drunk. You are to buy Christian paraphernalia. You are not to believe the things you learned in university. You are to be conservative. You are not to be liberal. And that's, it, it looks something like that. Like there's to-dos and not to-dos. And this is what many, maybe many of you, think that the sum of Christianity and the essence of Jesus or Christianity is. Actually, someone who has very recently come to faith in Christ asked me this week. He asked me, am I being transformed and renewed by God himself or am I converting my lifestyle to the social norms and expectations of a group of people that claim to have the keys to salvation? That was this very, very, very good question to me. What am I conforming to here? Like, you, we're sitting down, we're deci- you're discipling me, you're teaching me the scriptures. What am I, re- are you, am I conforming to this, this church and what you guys think is the truth? Or, am I, or is God transforming me? How am I being shaped? What am I conforming to? the church's social norms, or is there something more transcendent than all of that? Many of you, people in this church, and maybe even outside the church, think that Christianity is just a set of rules that you follow. Once you believe, here are your rules. You become a Christian, and you have to conform your life to these set of social norms. This is what we do as as the church now. This is what you're supposed to do. And now, these social norms look a lot like the list I just read. Now, the list I just read, is it true? Sure, some of those things on that list are true. That's what Colossians 3 is all about. But, and this is the the part I really want you to understand, the problem is when we divorce these commands, these things, these commands, that Colossians 3, when we divorce them, negative or positive commands, a couple weeks ago we called them indicatives. When we divorce these indicatives and these commands from who Jesus is, and our identity in him, they're just left right out there as marks of your 
devotion and religiosity. We can't divorce those commands from who Christ is and who we are in him. And that's what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. What is your new identity in Christ? How does that shape your character? And how does that shape your behavior? So here's a little example. Let me illustrate this to you. Now, I know to illustrate this, I'm going to have to be a bit stereotypical. Every illustration breaks down at some point, so forgive me. But let's just play a game. Let's say that I came up to you and said, okay, I'm going to say that you are a rap hip-hop hip-hop artist. You are a hip-hop artist. Now be that. Now how do you behave? And how do you act? And how do you talk? And how do you see your enemy now? And how do you see sex? And how do you see the opposite sex? Think about that. Okay, what if I said this? Now, now, now you're not a hip-hop artist anymore. You're a country music singer. Or a cowboy. Or I don't know what they call themselves. Um, um, it's Western people. I don't know. Let's say, now you're that, okay? That's who you are. Now, how do you behave? How do you act around those older than you? What do you think about your enemy? What do you think about America? How do you see sex and marriage and dogs and beer? (laughs) Just think about it. Now, one last one. You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of the king. How do you behave? How do you act and talk and see your enemy and see sex and opposite sex? How do you think about marriage and America and beer? What do you think now? See, no matter your affinities, what you have to start doing, get deep, deep, deep in your psyche, deep in your soul, deep in your person, is that you are, if you're you're a follower of Jesus, you are a child beloved of God who's been redeemed. Christ is your life. You are hidden in him. That's the truest thing. So that has to shape everything else. You're first a follower of Jesus. Then you're an artist. Then you're an actor. Then you're a banker and a mom and a boyfriend and a husband. But first, you're hidden in Christ. You know what that means when Paul writes that in Colossians 3? Your life is hid with Christ in God. That means this. That means that what is true of Christ is true of you. Everything true of Christ is now true of you. Holy, beloved, seated at the right hand of God. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. What's true of Jesus is now true of you. So here are just 20 things, and there's probably a million. But here are just 20 things that happen at your salvation. When you trust in Christ... This is what happens. Just, again, there's probably a zillion, but here's just 20. You are redeemed from the slavery to sin. You are reconciled to God. You are forgiven of your sins. You are freed from the law of sin and death. You are adopted by God. You are accepted by God. You become a child of God. You are justified by Jesus. You are glorified with Jesus. You are united, united to Jesus. You possess every spiritual blessing. You are delivered from the power of darkness. You join the people of God. You are granted access to God. You are in God. God the Father is in you. You are in the Son. The Son is in you. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. That's just 20. And there's like a million of them. This is all what happens when you, when you come into Christ through faith. This is all the truest about you. 
Now, the posture and the mandate of Scripture is to become now. And this is the rest of Scripture. This is how you're, you're supposed to read Scripture now. When you're in Christ, become who you are. That's how you have to read it. Become who you are. The way that Paul approaches this becoming who you are-ness in Colossians 3 is by saying, okay, you're hidden with Christ and God. You've died. Since then, you have died. Since then, you have been raised. Since Christ is your life. Put on and put off. Put off these former things. Put off these things he calls of the flesh, of the earth. Put off and then put on things. Put to death certain things and then put on love. And this is the posture that he takes. This, this is who you are. So Paul writes, the Bible calls it justification. Everything that's true of Christ is true of you. But then there is, you have to realize who you are. Come into realization. Walk in it. Live in it. The Bible calls this sanctification. To put off and to put on. In verse 1, he writes that we are to set our minds on things that are above. This isn't just a one-time act. It wasn't like, okay, I set my mind on things that are above like six years ago. I'm good. It's continually setting your mind. It's a constant from to. Set your mind from these things to here. So he says this. From sexual immorality, from impurity, from evil desire, from covetousness, from anger, from wrath, from slander, from obscene talk, and from lying. Turn from those things. Now, now turn to some things. Turn to compassion. Are you compassionate? And here's the thing. You are compassionate because your life is hidden with Christ and God, and Christ is compassionate. Are you living into that compassion? Kind, humble, patient, bearing with one another forgiving each other above all else love that's the things that you're to put on and the word that best embodies i think embodies this turning from something to something paradigm is the word repentance you and i as followers of jesus are called to live lives of repentance so i want to look at real quick the problem of repentance its power and the process and the reason why i'm going to start with problem is that a lot of you in here have a problem with that word repent. I say that word, you're like, oh my gosh, here he goes. Like he's going to start yelling and screaming and starting to sweat in a little bit and telling us we're going to repent or we're going to go to hell. See, the problem with the word repentance is it comes with all these negative connotations. We, we think when we hear repentance, we think of the anti-whatever campaigns. This conjures up in our mind people with signs and picketing and yelling, coming to San Francisco from far away in a 15-passenger van, getting out with signs and yelling at everyone, yelling at people to stop living the way that they're living and start living like they live. Repent and turn. And this doesn't really have anything to do with what repentance means. Another problem that we have with repentance, and this is more personal probably to you and me, if you think about it, when I say the scriptures call us to repent. The reason why most of us like, are like, wait, what? Is we're offended by someone telling us that you need to change. We're really offended by that. If I'm like, hey, repent. You're like, are you telling me I need to change? I'm, I'm pretty perfect. I don't know if you know. And we, th- we, we hate. We all know inside the word repentance is this imperative to change. And none of us really want to change. So when I say repent, you're like, that's an offense to me. Not only are we offended, and this is true. I don't get to do it individually, really, that often. 
sit down with somebody and I'm like, you're wrong. You, get to, you need to repent. But I bet if I went down and did, and when it's done to me, there's something in my flesh that's really offended by that. When I've had friends confront me about things, you need to repent, you're wrong here. I get offended. We all think that we're right. Not only we are, are we offended when someone tells us to change, but the other problem is we don't think we're really wrong. We think the way that we're living is the right way to live. We think that we see the world clearly and everyone else sees it blindly. We think that my sex ethic is healthy. My envy is righteous indignation. My spending habits are the way I remain neatly, being neatly groomed. My view of the world is very balanced. Everyone thinks that they're right. If you didn't think that you were right, you would change your view. Cornelius Plantinga in his um, great book on sin says, To do its worst, evil needs to look its best. Evil has to spend a lot on makeup. And this is what we do. This, we, we try to, we're like, I'm not wrong, I'm right. Completely, we hide our guilt and we hide the fact that we're wrong. We think we're right, we think we see clearly. And if I say to you, repent, you're like, repent from what? And the last problem, the last problem that I'll bring up with repentance is that with repentance, it's a lot of times our own repentance is a, um, a selfish repentance, if I could say it that way. When we do finally repent, it isn't a heartfelt sorrow for wrongdoing, but a selfishly motivated response to potential punishment. So we repent because we don't want to get in trouble. We repent because we don't want to be pregnant. We repent because we don't want our spouse to find out. We repent because we don't want to lose our job or ruin our career path. God, please forgive me this one time. I'm sorry. And, and, and we repent not because we, we've sinned and hurt the heart of God and broken relationship with someone else and with God. We repent because we don't want the consequences for that sin. And the Bible calls that worldly sorrow. Second Corinthians says, For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, listen to this, without regret. True repentance removes regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. And the reason why worldly sorrow produces death is because it doesn't really change you. There's no transformative power in worldly sorrow, but there's a transformative power in true repentance. Now let's look at the power of repentance. When Jesus began his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, he, this is how he kind of inaugurated his ministry with these words. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is how Jesus started his ministry. When he started ministering, he said everyone needs to repent and then believe. Repentance involves that you turn from something. Literally in Greek, it means to change your mind. To turn from something and then to turn to something. What do you Turn from the way that you saw the world now to believe the gospel. So it's turning from to, from yourself to the gospel. And, this is, and, and what Jesus meant by repentance was to abandon. Now listen, this is huge. Abandon your set of agendas. That's what repentance really means. I'm abandoning my set of agendas, my set of social norms, and I'm going to embrace his. Now, I, I want to share with you an example of this. Now, of course, in Colossians 3, there are many examples to put off sexual morality and covetousness and anger and these things. But I'm just going to give you one. This is kind of what repentance looks like. 
It's you first confessing. Everyone in here confessing this. My, to say something like this, under every single heading of our, in our life, this is, this is trying to be real self-aware. I understand this is a bit difficult. But it's to do something like this. It's to admit that your sexual ethic, your sex ethic is constructed by the norms of a postmodern, Western, individualistic society. Like if you start there, like, Normally, my sexual ethic is, is shaped, it's been shaped in a very postmodern, a very Western, a very individualistic society. And I live in San Francisco on top of all that. The West Coast, the very center for sexual expression and freedom. Now, what do I do with that? This is what you do. You just repent. Now, that word doesn't have to mean a bad word. This, all this means is this. I take Literally in Greek means change my mind. I turn from that. Like I've been shaped. My whole sexual identity has been shaped by where I grew up. Movies, TV, family, magazines, movies, everything. It's been shaped by this. I'm going to turn that and I'm going to turn to the way that Jesus has taught me to live as a sexual being in Scripture. I'm going to embrace God's sex ethic as revealed in Scripture and embodied in Jesus. That's what that means. Listen, it means I don't see it right, he does. And so I'm going to learn his sexual ethic. I'm going to learn how God created me. That's what that means. It's turning from, it's not this, sometimes we're thinking it's this like cutting, beating, like tearing our, 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 our like beating on our chest like type of thing. It's just simple. It's like this. I don't see it right, and God does. I'll turn to his way. Everyone in here, and I can guarantee this, everyone in this room is sexually broken. Please, please hear that. And when it comes to sex and sexual identity, Christians, heterosexual Christians, believe that since the direction of their sexuality seems to satisfy God's law, they're okay. They're justified. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. Janelle Paris wrote a great book, and in it she says, because the direction of their sexuality seems to satisfy God's law, heterosexuals, it seems, can establish secure identity with reference to the law. And this is what she says. This is what she means. Meaning, as heterosexual Christians, you're not, you're probably not living pure biblical lives, but at least you're sinning in the Adam and Eve paradigm. That's what that means. So you find your sexual identity and expression to be totally justified. So, yeah, you're, you're sinning. But at least you're not sitting like this, and it's okay, and it's socially acceptable in the church. So you can come to church, be involved in the life of the church, take communion, serve at the church, and all the while you're living sexually impure lives, and it's okay because it's heterosexual sin. All the while, and this completely breaks my heart, the gay community feels totally isolated from church and the community of faith. And they are told they cannot worship God and they have to go and start their own churches. So you have straight churches and gay churches and that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. 
His church is made up of people who are broken and who are being put back together by Jesus, who are looking to Jesus in this con- constant, perpetual state of repentance, turning to Christ. It's important that you understand what the Bible affirms. The Bible does not affirm you. The Bible doesn't affirm me. It affirms that you're broken and that you're isolated from the presence and the warmth of God and that you have fallen short of God's glory and you continue to go your own way. That's every single one of us. However, God loved you anyway and sent a son to die in your place for your sin. So it's very important that you understand that this church affirms that you and I are in need of grace, God's grace. Let me continue this quote because it's so good. Because the direction of their sexual sexuality seems to satisfy, satisfy God's law, heterosexuals, it seems, can establish secure identity with reference to the law, not God's grace. Meaning, the starting point isn't God's grace. The starting point is, I'm good, right? Because I fall under the confines of what the law says. No, you're in need of God's grace. As Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But in truth, heterosexual journeys are complicated too with feelings, thoughts, behaviors, relationships, and values that don't line up perfectly. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy for every single soul in this building and every single soul in the city? The remedy is the same, repent. You and I are in need of repentance. Everyone, Christian, you're in need of repentance. To turn wholeheartedly to God. You don't see things perfectly. You have to admit that. You don't see things perfectly. As a pastor who has given my life to study the Bible and to minister to people, I don't see things perfectly. Only God does. So let's all repent and turn to Jesus. Repentance involves turning away from disobedience and toward obedience. Real repentance is not repenting from the consequences of sin. Not saying, oh my gosh, I sinned, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to mess up my life, my career, my relationships. Real repentance is repenting from the act of sin, the sin of sin. This is why. Because the consequences of sin are what hurt you. The sin is what hurts God. This is why we must repent from the sin of sin, not the consequences of sin. And here's the power of repentance. When you understand the gospel, repenting is like being reborn and being renewed. When you believe the gospel, repenting is like being reborn and renewed because what happens is the second that you repent, you realize that the reason you have relationship with God is not your performance. That's what repentance is all about. Like, wait, the reason I have relationship with God and I can relate to God is not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. Not my past, his past. Not my record, his record. Not my deeds, Jesus' deeds. So how do we repent? What's the process? Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. We might think it's God's wrath that leads us to repentance, right? Like, his judgment leads me to repentance. I repent because I don't want to get burned. No, actually, it's his kindness, Romans says. It's the understanding that we deserve God's wrath. Colossians 3, 6 says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It is coming. But we see when we repent, God relents and he restores us. And it's that offer 
the offer of him restoring you, him forgiving you, the kindness of God, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's that kindness that draws us to repentance. It's believing. Do you believe? Do you believe that you could turn to Christ right now and believe upon his perfect life and his perfect record and his atoning death and that you can be forgiven and then you can be received? If you believe in that, then repent and turn to him. It's the kindness of God that would lead us to repentance. John Calvin in his Institutes of uh, Christian Religion says, repentance in every Christian lasts as long as life lasts. Now you're like, okay, I repented like a year ago, man. I think I'm pretty good. (laughs) No, okay. A constant state of repentance. Okay, this is why repentance is such a good, good thing. You're going, okay, I thought this was, like this is heavy, but you have to understand repentance is a great thing. A great thing, a constant state. Martin Luther said this when, I, oh, when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the, on the church door in, in, in Wittenberg or Wittenberg or however you say it, the catalyst for the Reformation, he wrote this. The first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. Our entire life must be one of doing what? Turning from our way to God's way. In everything, in work, in life, in relationship, in everything. See, what the reformers were discovering afresh was that repentance is the way that we enter the kingdom of God. You said repent. The kingdom of God is ahead, repent and believe the gospel. It is the way that we get into the kingdom of God, but it's also continued repentance is the way the kingdom of God enters us. Kingdom repentance is how, uh, uh, constant repentance is how the kingdom of God gets deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives. To where we're living by kingdom values in our relationships and with our friends and with our family and with our coworkers and with our neighbor and with our city. It's like bringing the shalom of God inside and then working it out. See, what happens is that the that God renews us in a moment. The second you turn to Christ, you're renewed in that moment. Everything that's true of Christ is true of you. That's who you really are. That's your true identity. But the process of realizing that renewal, the process of the renewal of our sexual identity, the renewal of our passions, the renewal of our evil desire, our covetous hearts, our anger, our wrath, our slander, our obscene talk, the renewal of our lying tongue is a process that the Spirit of God accomplishes in you, and it takes a very long time. Again, John Calvin. Renewal is not accomplished in a moment, a day, or a year, but by uninterrupted, sometimes even slow progress, God abolishes the remains of the carnal corruption, cleanses us from pollution, restoring all our inclinations to real purity so that during our whole lives we may, have, we may practice repentance and know that death is the only termination to this warfare. Constant repentance, constant turning to Christ. Now, again, don't get this confused. You must go back. If you haven't listened to the last couple of studies, you must go back. You, once you've turned to Christ, you are secure in him. Everything that's true of Christ is true of you. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, yes. But now this constant state of repentance is realizing, becoming who you are, turning from your ways to his ways. And our new identity 
God assigns repentance as the goal toward which we must keep running during the course of our whole lives. We must be humble and repentant. So, this is how I want to close. The reason why there's a possibility for repentance, the reason why repentance is possible is because, because God is gracious. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 says, even now declares the Lord, this is what the Lord's saying, return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That was signs. That was like pictures of truly returning to God. But listen to what he says. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What they would do is, in order to show sorrow, they would tear open their outer cloak. Just rip it apart. And God's like, you know what? You can save the show. Just rend your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel asked this um, rhetorical question, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows? Let me tell you this. Because we have the full revelation of God in the, in the New Testament, I know. I know that God will relent. And the reason why I know that is not because of your performance, but because of Christ's performance. That's why in John 3, the most common verse, you probably everyone knows it, right? it says that God loved the world and he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, which is just as important, says, for God did not send his own son in the world to condemn the world, but that through the world we would be forgiven. 1 John 4 says, and this is love, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God will relent. God will forgive. We must rend our hearts and not our garments. Understand that the way that you see the world, the way that I see the world, the way that we see ourselves, the the way that we have gone our own way is not entirely right. God is right. And God is holy, and God is merciful, and God is kind. And in our hearts and with our affections, we must turn to Him. So let's rend our hearts. Let's repent. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kindness and your love and your grace. And I pray for this, this church right now. pray that those that are under the the weight and the guilt of their own sin, I know they can explain it away, therapists can explain it away, but that was, that conscious, that, that, that was placed there by you. And I pray, God, that you would, as we turn to you, that you would remove not just the sin, but even your word says that the guilt of sin, the remorse of sin, and then we can live without regret. 
It doesn't even seem fair, God. I pray, God, that if we've never turned to you, that you would give, the, give us the faith to turn to you. We repent, Lord. If we've been walking with you for 15 years, we repent. If we've been walking with you for 25 years, we repent. We turn to Jesus again. In your name, amen.